Hello and welcome to Complementary Training Podcast Episode 4. In this episode, I'm talking to Mike Boyle. Mike Boyle recently published second edition of his famous Functional Training for Sports book. Besides talking about the book, we touched numerous hot topics and Mike is not escaping giving honest answers to tricky questions. Since this podcast is a recording of a Skype interview, we had a couple of glitches in the recording, but nothing too distracting, uh, but I apologize for that in advance. Before listening to Mike's No Hold Bad Answers, I wanted to thank to our sponsor for making this podcast possible. Here's their message. Smarterbase is a truly unique athlete data management solution for pro teams, colleges, Olympic sports, the military, performing arts and research. Smarterbase encapsulates the ability to integrate all forms of data from many different sources of technology such as GPS, Omega Wave, Elite Form and many others. It has unparalleled reporting features, offering the user access to any data in the system within three clicks of the mouse. Most importantly, it is a customizable platform that you develop based on your needs and workflows for your data. With support teams based in the USA, UK and Australia, Smarterbase is in over 150 organizations in more than 10 countries. If interested, email info at fusionsport.com. Hello, uh, welcome to Complementary Training Podcast, Episode 4. In this episode, I'm talking to Mike Boyle. Uh, there's no much need to introduce Mike. Uh, he's pretty much the godfather of uh, strength conditioning. Um, pretty much um, a, a guy who is um, either hated or loved, uh, but definitely one of the most influential uh, coaches and authors out there. Uh, Mike is currently in Chicago, if I'm correct, at yes, Perform sir. Better. Um, so we're going to give him chat a little bit with, with Mike for uh, maybe a couple of a couple of 30-40 minutes um, regarding his new book and uh, how things evolved from from the last edition. Um, thanks, uh, hello Mike, and thanks for uh, taking your time to to do this podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me on. As I said, you've done such a great job. You you reach a really good audience, and you probably reach that audience that's uh, 50-50 on me in terms of either they love me or they hate me. So this will be good. <laughs> that's awesome. We'll, um, so we'll read the book so they can. Get mad at me, and some people will read it because they're interested. <laughs> I mean, if you if you never piss someone off, you're probably doing a bad job. I think that's a, a saying somewhere I read. <laughs> I, I'm absolutely right. I think it should probably be about, if you're in a seminar, it should be about 80-20. If you're doing a good job, 80% of the people should agree with you. 20% of the people should be pissed off. And 0.01. And that's, uh, probably that's really it. the <laughs> You know, it's... Uh, that's a good yeah. issue. <laughs> so yeah, uh, your new book is coming out. Uh, it's called The New Functional Training for Sports. The previous book was published in which year? 2004. 2004. So it's 12, 12 years after the first edition. Um, what's, what's new in the book and uh, compared to the old edition, sorry, to the first edition and you know, how did your system evolve? It's interesting because when uh, a guy named Ted Miller from Human Kinetics came to me and said, I want you to, or we want you to do a second edition of the book, my first reaction was, that book's fine. 
it, it's a pretty good rendition and a picture of what we do. But one thing, as you know, because you write a lot, you very rarely go back and reread things that you wrote at another time. So he had said to me, Mike, I really think you should just look back through the book and you, know, you might realize that it needs some updates. And in all honesty, I wasn't that interested in the project because book publishing for a big publishing house really doesn't pay you back in terms of dollars per hour. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, but I did go back. I picked up, picked up a copy of the book, looked through it, and I was like, oh, my God. There was stuff in there that there's no mention of foam rolling. The word mobility is not even in there. I actually say in the book to not stretch. There are things. So when you think about the evolution, and that's not even before you get to the, the training, the strength training part of the programming. So it started out where they wanted a second edition, and then they titled it New Functional Training for Sports because it really became a new book. Even though if you read the first one and you look at this one, you'll see a lot of similarity because we followed the same relative chapter sequences. I really started with the old book as a template, like, okay, here's the old book. And then I went through, because I still had the chapters in my computer, I went through chapter by chapter and just updated everything, took stuff out, said, oh, that's bullshit, I don't even do that anymore, or, or this needs to change, or we need to add this. And we added a whole chapter just on foam rolling and mobility work prior to now what would be you know the warm-up chapters and then we went back through everything the warm-up chapters the you know lower body upper body pulling pushing and then put the programmings and the good thing is the programs are last summer's programs so they're very recent when you're considering the world of publishing because one thing that I realized when I started to write books was that by the time you get a book it's already a little bit out of date somebody's already probably moved on to some other idea during that time, so, so that's interesting. Is I mean, recently there's um, more and more people writing and publishing books, especially with uh, you know Kindle uh, and all these you know eBooks. Uh, and I end up reading books pretty quickly, to be honest. It's like you know before you get a paperback or something, and you, you spend some time reading everything. Now I'm just pretty much skimming through a book. Um, so compared to the to other uh, similar, uh, I would say, books, uh, you know, besides you being the author, uh, what's what you know? What's the difference between uh, the new functional training and and you know the other similar um, titles? Well, it's funny, and I don't even think the only similar title that I found, even over the years, was I actually just ate breakfast with Mark Verstegen, but his original core performance, I think, was very similar to my functional training for sports because it's what I think a lot of people do when they do these books and I don't I particularly dislike you know 50 pages worth of stuff and then they put in 150 pages of exercise descriptions mine's probably almost the exact opposite in terms of I probably wrote 200 pages of stuff and there's 50 pages of exercise descriptions or if there are in their thought process. I think that's the biggest thing with us is that when we're looking at, okay, why are we doing, you know, my presentation that I'm uh, doing today is based on the Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. And I think for us, that's the big kind of jumping off point is why do we do what we do? Because obviously there are things that we do that are considered to be somewhat controversial, more because we don't follow we don't follow the path. We don't follow what everybody else is doing. You had mentioned in that, you know, when we were talking before about Bosch's work, and there, I think there are people that are progressive, 
And then there are people who just copy. They just do what everybody else does. And I think we're in that progressive category of being able to look at stuff and think, okay, is there a better, I always think, is there a better, safer way to do this? And I look at, say, the Bosch stuff and realize there's clearly a better way when you start thinking about unilateral training. And then I look at some of the things that we're doing and is there a safer way? Yeah. And, and that in some ways comes back to unilateral training too. So I think for me, because, and I say this all the time, but because our audience, our audience is a child, his parents and professional athletes. That's primarily who our model is. And all of those people want to be healthy. A parent doesn't want their kid getting hurt trying to back squat 400 pounds. A parent doesn't want to get hurt and not be able to go to work. And to perform. Although the crossfitters, oh, injuries are part of the process, or the powerlifters, you know, oh, it's, you know, things are going to happen. In my mind, things shouldn't happen. They don't need to happen. If you do things properly, you should be able to get better. And whatever your definition of different than your definition of better might be it. Getting better and feeling better. And those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. And I think there was a time in strength and conditioning, maybe when we thought they were. So let's. I don't want to touch much on, on, on this topic because I think it's already been bastardized. Um, so the the term functional training seems to be uh, associated with two things. One is pretty much Mike Boyle, and second one is doing you know possible you know circus acts. Um, so some coaches still believe that, uh, you are the one, uh, pretty much, um, doing the same stuff. So did you ever thought about maybe changing the name of, of, of the book or changing this, uh, or using less the term of functional training in, in quotation, because it's now it's being associated with all these crazy circus acts. Right. Yeah. I mean, it does. And I, I, no, it's funny. I didn't think about changing the name because I feel like, um, that would have been me kind of bailing out and, and it is something I kind of laugh when people, you know, functional training because, uh, somebody wrote a critique. I won't say who, but a, an internet writer wrote a critique of my book talking about, Oh, uh, you know, it's all this stability ball balance stuff. And, and I actually went back through the book, the first book and I looked and there were eight exercises that used a stability ball. <laughs> And that was it. And they were, I said, you know, there, I think there were 56 exercises pictured in the book. I said, so less than, less than 20% of them had any sort of element of instability at all in it. And in this one, it probably went down to this probably now four or five, probably the only thing. So you, you were talking about, you know, pretty much, um, and, and I pretty much agree with, with that, uh, because I, I did an internship there in 2010. Um, so I, I don't buy this argument that, uh, you know, functional training by Mike Boyle is, you know, doing possible crap. So, and I, I, I find those arguments pretty, pretty funny because, uh, you know, I experienced firsthand. So you're, you're mostly right. You know, that's why I always say to people, you know, go read the book, go look at our YouTube page. It's, you know, MBSC video, which it's really funny to think about YouTube. And I just started using it for storage, thinking that it was a place to put video. And a million people, more than a million people, I think, maybe approaching two million, have viewed videos on the page and see what we're doing. Because I think one of the things I found is that people are really critical of me or of our style of training. 
but they don't spend the time to actually investigate what we do. They think they know what we do. And that's, like I said, the critique that this guy wrote of the book, you know, talking about that the book was silly and all about BOSU balls and balance discs. And I was like, that's not true. You didn't read the book. You just, you know, even if you skimmed it, maybe you did some type of bridge on a stability ball because the stability balls aren't inherently bad. They're just not, you know, they're just another tool in the toolbox. And that's the other thing you think about tools in the toolbox. I mean, kettlebells. We didn't even mention kettlebells in the first book because we weren't using them. So there's so many things that we were able to add in. Yeah, another critique that I, that I often hear about your programs is, uh, is a cookie cutter programming. Um, so... And I, I would say I agree a little bit with this one uh, without any negative connotation. Um, it's, it's that um, the, the summer program uh, I experienced in 2010 was pretty similar across the groups. So my, my next question will be uh, why, why, you know, why using the same program for everyone in, in the facility and um, you know, how would you individualize or cluster the athletes based on, on the needs, age, uh, experience? You know, are you switching to that model now more or, or still continuing doing the, I would say, covering the bases with a, with a I would say, cookie-cutter program. But uh, it's quite, even if, it, if it's a cookie-cutter program, it's pretty pretty decent weightlifting program. And I don't, I don't hear people bitching about, programs such as 531 or, um, you know, any other program online being cookie cutter and they still apply to, to everyone. So how, what's your, what's your take on this one? I, I think in all honesty, and I try to, this is something I try to get people to understand. When you look at the number of people that were going to try to train, you have to realize that, you know, you have to, you have to start with a template. You've got to start with something that you can work from. And it's different. Obviously when I went, I spent two years in professional baseball and we trained very differently than the way that we train in that summer. And, you know, even when I looked at training pitchers, you know, when you've got somebody who really is like, you know, you've been in the, you know, in pro soccer and in Australian English football, when you really get people that are really dialed into one thing, then maybe some of the specific stuff makes sense. But I think sometimes people are too quickly looking for, you know, I think, and I said this yesterday, people want a program for the exception and not the rule. And I want a program for the rule and not the exception. And then figure out the exception as I go. Because I look at it and think, in a basic strength and conditioning program, everybody should learn the same fundamental things. I think it's very similar to education in terms of we want people to learn reading skills, writing skills, arithmetic skills. And once they've done that, then there's things that we can worry about. But I don't think that the average athlete in the U.S. has the command of the basics that I would like them to have. So, yeah, I think we do have, you know, I would say, you know, cookie cutter, generic, template. I'd be like, yep, yep, yep. But what I would say to people is, have you tried our cookie cutter, generic, template program and compared it to yours? And have you tried to do the things that we're doing in terms of, have you tried to train athletes across the range of sports? Because the one thing, I've had success with athletes from soccer to judo to American football, to baseball, and, and with, relatively speaking, similar programming concepts over and over again. And these people are winning championships, winning medals. So to me, 
I think it's a, just people want to find reasons to criticize me and criticize what we do. I think that's the nature. The one thing I realize is part of being successful is that you will become a target at some point and that people will take cheap shots at you. And a lot of it is based on people that are jealous. And as you've said, I think over time people come around and realize, oh, I, I get it now. Like we were talking earlier before we actually started recording. Like you said, people have to learn by their own mistakes. I'm really trying to help people benefit from my mistakes because I was a power lifter. I was a football strength and conditioning coach. I've done all the, all the stupid things that I tell people not to do. I did at least once, if not for 10 years at a time. So, um, you know, I'm not there saying, you know, do my program. I coach and you know, I coach every day. If I'm in the weight room, I have groups, I coach, I'm working with people and I'm looking at success and failure rates. Does this work? Does this not work? Because to me, what I want to do, I always say the Holy Grail is the perfect program, the one that you'd like you, the perfect cookie cutter. And obviously that's not going to happen, but I think you still keep chasing. Yeah, this, this reminds me of the, uh, uh, my current pet peeve of uh, this agile approach. Um, and you're the one to influence me to read, I would say, business books. And I started you know, seeing the, um, I would say, the application of some of the business ideas to coaching actually and one of them one of those is, is the this lean uh, and agile um, pro project management and people people believe they're gonna do a, a screening and they're gonna look at the athlete and immediately know you know how to individualize you know the program where now I believe we need to start with a, I would say minimum viable program in, in this case cookie cutter or generic program and you know use that for a certain amount of time and then adapt as you go. You know, you, you don't make a plan, you, you pretty much emphasize iterative planning and then you adjust the program because, uh, you know, you're not going to go in a gym or a club or whatever and then, aha, you're doing this and you're doing that. You need to, you know, you need to get familiar with the sport, you need to get familiar with the individual. Uh, so I completely agree with your, uh, with your opinion on, about this issue. Um, yeah. And that's what like you said. All there's also the slippery slope of why do they get to do this? I, you know, I was speaking to the group yesterday, and one of the things that I say, if you have guys and you give guys the choice of what to do, generally speaking, they're going to be like, what one do I get to use the most weight? <laughs> so you know what I mean? If I say, okay, we can do back squat, front squat, split squat, the guy's going to look and you know when they see the strongest guy you know, gets the back squat, he's got 400 pounds, and everybody's looking at him thinking, wow, he's so strong, I want to do that. Instead of me looking at it and thinking, well, you know, you might be better off based on your mechanics at front with front squat. You might be better off based on your back pain history with split squat. We've kind of taken a lot of that decision making away and boiled it down to, okay, what's the simplest, safest choice? And that's what you talk about business books. I've been reading, I don't think I've read a strength and conditioning book. I couldn't tell you the last one I read. Actually, you talked Ron McKeefe, CEO of Strength Coach, and that's not even really a strength and conditioning book. I, I haven't read, you know, I started... Again, like you, I skimmed Bosch's book. I need to spend more time sort of inside that book. But I was, I felt good. I felt validated in Bosch's book because I look at, I mean, he's further out on the edge than I am in terms of he's doing a lot of unilateral, unstable surface stuff. And, and I felt like, okay, that's reinforcing to see a really intelligent track coach. And you look at the Bodnichuk stuff, same idea, besides as much as I think because they're not, I've placed myself 
accidentally or on purpose in the mainstream, so probably right in the line of fire for a lot of people. So I've become a little bit of the lightning rod, I think, for people to to criticize, as you said, functional training, cookie-cutter programs. And, and when you realize, you know, you, you've got to take risk. It's a risk for me to put myself out there, to write this book, to put the information out in front of people. But if you're not willing, you know, no risk, no reward. If you want to be somebody in the field, you've got to be willing to be criticized. You touched, uh, you touched a little bit about the, the topic of your work with a professional club. Um, can you expand a little bit about the, you know, the similarities and differences between uh, you know, working in different sports as opposed to working in, in I would say, off-season, summer um, you know, gym workouts? What's, what's the difference? What's the similarity? Well, you know, the, the, the difference, baseball, you know, it's funny. Uh, oh, my God, what was his name? I listened to um, the guy who ran the British Olympic strength and conditioning effort. His name is escaping me now. Italian, speaks, speaks British with an Italian or English with an Italian accent, but um, Italian, British accent. Which Are you talking about nice. Marco Cardinale? Cardinale, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things he said it, when he started his talk was, your sport's not different, you just think it is. And so when you go into the professional sports world, that's one of the things you realize. Everybody feels like, oh, our sport's totally, it's so unique, it's so different. And you kind of, and I'm like, actually it's not. We still have to have this kind of generic cookie cutter idea in terms of you've got to push, you've got to pull, you've got to do knee dominant exercises, you've got to do hip dominant exercises, you've got to do power work, you've got to do core work. Like all this stuff has to get done. But when you're in the professional ranks, you have to do that while respecting the client, the player, because you can't just dismiss, you can't be dismissive at the professional level. You have to be cooperative. The best thing I did at the professional level, the thing that changed everything for me when I got, when I got to spring training my first year with the Red Sox, I immediately set to work. We had a lot of injured guys. We had 11 guys in the disabled list that had had some type of surgery or injury the previous year that were coming you know, into spring training. I started one-on-one -on -one training those guys, as many of them as I could. And it was amazing within probably two weeks, I had healthy players asking me, you know, do you have time for me? When can you fit me in? Because they saw the work that I was doing with the injured guys. And that's all individualized because now you're trying to, okay, how do I design a program for a guy who can only use one arm? How do I design a program for a guy who can only use one leg? Like we're able to do all that stuff. It's not that we can't do it. It's just that when you have that healthy group in front of you, you still want to like, you know, well, we didn't Olympic lift. All of our power work was jumps. Because, yes, I can look at professional base on their glenohumeral joint that I'm going to get from Olympic lifting. Probably not. Do I want the risk in terms of, you know, risks catching bars? Probably not. So, you know, we eliminated that. That was one thing. So for me, I took a big piece out of my programming and had to replace it with some, you know, additional plyo work or, you know, MVP shuttle work or something else where we could get that power component done but a lot of the other stuff it it wasn't really nearly as different as people wanted it to be but i always think i talk about you know you need to speak coach you need to speak player you need to be able to go in there and talk to coaches you know one of the things the coaches would complain all oh, these guys the weights they're lifting are too heavy and i looked at some of the coaches i said do you understand why we have a steroid problem in baseball why do guys take steroids they take steroids to get stronger if we can get them stronger by lifting heavy weights, we're going to, they might not either want to do or be, you know, 
legally able to do. And they kind of looked at me like, oh, I haven't really thought about it that way. So, so much of it is, and that's the business books you talk about, is that ability to deal. It's, it's people. This is all about people. This is not about sets and reps. And I think that's where people get screwed up is that they get so into I can remember, you know, people, one you know, intern one summer, you know, and he wanted to argue about Shakeo versus Smolov squat cycles. And I was like, who gives a shit? You know what I mean? Like six sets of one, one set of six. It doesn't make any difference. You don't have, you know, you're, you're lost here. But, but that's where I think people get lost. They get lost in the, in the science and, not, and they don't realize that this is a people game. Yeah, I agree completely. I'm currently listening to a book called The Triggers. It's all, all those new books about you know, change management and, and habit building. And, and I find more you know, applied information uh, you know, working from those type of books uh, be because at the end of the day, as you say, we are you know, trying to change culture, we are trying to change people. Uh, we, we want to make them doing something that's pretty much unpleasant, you know, unless you're you know, a powerlifter. So lifting right. heavy and training is pretty much unpleasant activity. And working in a professional soccer, you quickly realize it's a, it's a cultural thing. Um, and I'm actually, I don't know if you read it, I, I wrote the article called It's Not Sport Specific, It's Culture Specific. And the thing I've noticed... I didn't read that one. You have to send me that one. But yeah. that's a, and you're right. And it's because it's funny. I just had some guys over from Tottenham Spurs uh, last week for like a little mini mentorship week, and they showed me what they're doing, and they're doing an unreal job with their guys. And it shows in terms of where they are in the Premier League. And um, but they're disguising a lot of it as warm up. You yeah. know, this is our warm up. This is our activation. This is our mobility. And you're like, oh my god, you're sneaking everything in. You got your plyos snuck in. You know, you got everything snuck in here under the guise of these little 15, 20-minute warm-ups that they do every day. They had such a great program. But as you said, culturally, you know, I had uh, I had the pleasure of being able to train Daniel Sturridge last summer when he was coming back from his hip surgery, and it was the same thing. He was like, well, I don't really, you know, I'm not, I don't really like, you know, patient. We're just going to do some one-leg squats. We're going to do some chin-ups. You know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on your weight. We'll make sure you're not putting on a ton of mass. And, and he was fine. And, you know, he's, he's done fine. But you do have to realize that, it, as you said, culturally, particularly in the soccer football world in, in Europe, uh, the idea of they're very – the one thing they don't want is something that looks like American football. That's like the – I mean, so you've got to kind of be sneaky with – one leg squats and one leg straight leg deadlifts and some of these things and maybe some like balance exercises that you're actually sneaking in some strength training stuff in and slowly, and that's where I like uh, the Dan John Pavel, like the easy strength approach. I used to say that's what I did with baseball. Might go two or three weeks with 16 kilo kettlebell and then say, yeah, grab the 20 this week. Go two or three weeks with the 20, try the 24. And just sort of slowly over the course of the season coaxing them up trying to get them to handle a little bit more weight, but also the other, you know, realizing that it's a process, it's going to take time. One thing that doesn't cease to amaze me... These guys don't have to have heavy bars on their back. Yeah, sorry, Mike, there was a, a break in, in line, so I started with the next question. Uh, anyway, the, the thing I've noticed between, I would say, soccer, uh, where they underutilize you know, strength training, and you can see all these funny videos of the big clubs, what we believe is the bigger the club, the more serious the work, but I, I find it actually the opposite. So, um, and similarity with 
would say in, in soccer, um, they put a lot of emphasis on, on skill with the ball and being tactical on the pitch, which I agree completely. All this, uh, the new tactical periodization by the Spanish coaches and uh, integration of, of strength conditioning with, within the, the sport itself, uh, where, for example, um, and I'm not expert on this, so please correct me if I'm, you know, if I'm saying something stupid, is American football, where the emphasis is still on the big three, uh, you know, power clean, squad, and bench press, uh, and being pretty much general um, and pretty much not doing much compared to soccer, skill work on the pitch. So just being, you know, big and, and strong. So it's definitely a different sport. Uh, but but I, I would like to see both sports try to, you know, moving a little bit to the middle where in soccer they, they want to be more stronger and, you know, football players need to be more, I would say, learning from uh, ideas from Spanish coaches, you know, trying to be smarter on the pitch and not spending as much time in the gym. Uh, you know, what's your opinion about this? I would say in, in general you're probably correct. I think, you know, in the NFL particularly, some of the teams are moving to what I would call much more intelligent programming and moving away from sort of the big three idea. I think in American collegiate football, I think it's actually almost moved backwards in terms of it's getting dumber and it's much more about just yelling and screaming at guys that, you know, to lift weight, as much weight as they possibly can. And as you said, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. One of the things I've, um, I've taken to describe it as filling buckets. You know, and when you get your group, you've got tactical bucket, you've got a strength bucket. And I look at it and think your job is to get the empty bucket filled. And your other job is to make sure they're not overfilling any of the buckets. And so what we realized with like soccer was overflowing in the sense that everybody's always worried about, gotta be fit, gotta be fit, gotta run, gotta run, gotta run. And the strength bucket was completely empty, sometimes had nothing in it at all. And so you kind of look at that and think, you know, when they're worried about, I got all these guys that are injured, I got hamstring injuries, I got hip flexor injuries, I got groins, I got sports hernias, you're like, well, you know, let's take a little out of that fitness bucket and let's put a little bit more in this strength bucket and we're going to solve your problem. You know, maybe it's, you know what I mean? Do, are your guys stretching? Are they rolling? You know, what are we doing? Like, there's so much, especially in these premiership teams, there's so much money and there's so much staffing, but there's not, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like it's like the Emperor's New Clothes where people don't want to stand up and say, wait a second, we've got, you know, this bucket's empty. <laughs> and that's how, you know, when I started in baseball, I looked and thought, well, we get some empty buckets, we got some overfull buckets, there's some things that we really need to to rectify here. We had guys, we literally had guys who did not warm up, would immediately go in the batting cage when they got to the field and start swinging a bat. And, you know, and the big thing at that time in baseball, everyone was worried about all these oblique strains. And I said, well, of course we've got oblique strains. I said, you can't have a guy who comes in here at seven o'clock in the morning, puts his stuff on and goes in the batting cage and starts hitting baseballs. That's just dumb. And, and it was like, well, you know, so-and-so likes to do that. I'm like, I get it. They likes to do that. We just got to slow them down by 10 minutes and say, we need 10 minutes of work before you go in there. You got to get in, you got to roll, you got to stretch, you got to get stuff moving before you jump in the cage and start chopping away at baseballs. And we were able to get our injury rate in two years. You know, we went from a very injured team. The first year we were there, I says, my first year we had 11 disabled guys to start spring training. Second year, I think we had zero, meaning we had zero surgeries after that first season. And I think a lot of it was just by looking, you know, bouncing the buckets out. 
and saying, okay, we need to, everybody needs to, in our case, the warm-up mobility bucket didn't have much in it. But in the strength training bucket, you know, we probably didn't change that very much. We probably did about the same volume as they've done before, but we might have changed the, the, the composition of what was in the bucket changed. <laughs> so... It seems to be it seems to be important that strength conditioning coach needs to start looking at things like I would say holistic to use this new age term, uh, just seeing the whole picture and you know address the big elephants you know elephants in the room instead of you know uh, you know juggling with, with minor details and you know worrying about the marginal gains where there's a, a big elephant sitting there, and sometimes the the clubs actually. You know, even if you want to, even if you want to help the club and address some of the issues, you know, beyond your jurisdiction uh, responsibility, you know, they are not really willing to change some of the stuff because you know you are a goddamn strength conditioning coach, um, you know. So uh, again, comes back to this, you know, changing the culture, changing the habits, you know, influencing other people, uh, and you know, I agree completely on that. So um, an- another question I wanted to to you know, ask you is the uh, um, influence of the business model and facility as a constraint on, on a program design. Um, so, for example, being intern in your facility, uh, the program, or in this case, the facility is designed um, to be, you know, to, to, to follow the idea of the workout. Um, sometimes the people just design the facility and they try to, um, you know, do a workout where I think you read somewhere you design the facility based on what you want to do in that facility uh, as opposed to doing vice versa. Uh, but my question, for example, if you, if you, um, if you have a business plan, you know, or business model where certain groups are coming in, you have, you know, certain amount of time, um, inside the gym, for example, maybe hour or hour and 15, 20 minutes per group, uh, you might be constrained with some of the training options, especially when it comes to conditioning. So you're a big proponent of, you know, doing high-intensity conditioning um, as opposed to doing aerobics. So my question is, um, how much is, is the business model actually constraining you to do high-intensity training only as opposed to, you know, biological realities, if that makes sense? I'm not, not sure. Yeah, that makes a lot. Actually, I think, I still believe that it is the way to go. And it's, it's funny because we've had sort of... Uh, uh, you know what I would call the, the Joel Jameson debate running for quite a while, but one of the things that we've realized and we've started to study it with our heart rate monitor system is our sort of warm up speed plyo. Like a lot of the preparatory stuff that we're doing is probably giving us twenty minutes of low intensity aerobic work at the beginning of our workout that we almost don't check the box there and say you know we never thought about it that way, but. Um, so I still would not, this is not a fan of the idea of, hey, you know, the workout's over, you know, hop on the bike for 40 minutes. I don't think anybody, and I think some of that's the human nature thing. I don't think anybody likes that stuff. And I don't know if there's enough benefit to make it worth doing. So I would say some of it is business model, some of it is stubbornness, and some of it is looking, you know, sort of at the science and looking at our success rate and realizing that our athletes are being really successful without these extended periods. Because the other thing that you run into, particularly like for us with ice hockey players, they're getting, you know, you talk about that bucket again, they're getting tons and tons of ice time 
that we're not factoring into what we're doing. And for me, I always feel like most people, you know, nobody minds going to practice. Nobody minds doing that work, you know, and if you're, if you're on the ice in practice with your heart rate monitor on, you're probably spending a lot of time in that sort of low-intensity aerobic zone of, you know, 120 to 150, whatever we wanted to look at. But most people don't like that uncomfortable, really high, really hard stuff. So for me, that's where I like to focus. I want to focus on the really hard, high-quality stuff that I don't think most people would do on their own. And I get it. Like some people have been critical about it in soccer because maybe it's been overdone where it's too much. You know, you listen to like Dave Tenney, who I love. I think is a brilliant guy. You know, some of the college kids that he gets have been like shuttle run to death by their coaches because there's too much high intensity. But when you really look at our program, we really have one high intensity day and three moderate days. And But none of them are long. You're right. You know, just business model wise, they all tend to be about 15 minutes at the end of the workout. But when you combine that with the total hour and a half experience that the person has in the facility and then you add that into like if you look at say my daughter as an example is doing five more hours of on ice work in addition to the say six hours she spends with us she's still got 50% of her time that's devoted to kind of skill acquisition and effectively low-intensity cardiovascular work. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it comes back to, to the idea of, you know, looking the whole uh, whole system, uh, you know, as opposed to looking at one one bucket and analyzing, you know, a single bucket. You need to see what's happening in a sport. And my general, you know, rule of thumb um, is that if the sport is, you know, pretty, you know, doing low-intensity, I'll say low-medium-intensity aerobic zone, whatever you want to call it, then, you know, you need to supplement it with high intensity, where if the sport or sessions are high intensity training, you need to ease, ease out a little bit with, you know, you know, conditioning when it comes to, um, you know, physical preparation. So that makes um, a lot of sense. Right. Um, That's what we do. You know, we know that, you know, for us, like, particularly in the non-competitive season, which is when we have most people, that they're not getting that high end of the spectrum. And the other thing we looked at, and this is, you know, I don't know how much of Dave Tenney's stuff that you've read, but I think he's really smart, but sort of listening to Joel talk and listening to Dave talking, you know, one of the things that Dave said was that you can look at, you know, when we look at fitness, we look at resting heart rates. And, you know, one of the things David said is you want resting heart rates to be in the 50s. And almost all of our athletes are in the 50s. And recoveries, and what their one-minute recoveries were like and what their two-minute recoveries were like from any high-intensity activity that we exposed them to. And what we were seeing was with these basically 15-minute or less conditioning bouts that we were doing, the end result was what we wanted in terms of we don't have – we have very few athletes whose heart rates are above 60 resting. And we're getting you know, somewhere in like – I like 30, 50, 30. You know, if you're recovering 30 beats or more in a minute and 50 beats or more in two minutes – then you're generally pretty fit. You know, and we've probably got a lot of 40, 60 people and a decent amount of 30, 50 people. And and almost no, you know, somebody where you look and think, okay, in a minute nothing's happened, nothing's come down. Those are beginners, people that are just starting the program might fall into that, but in general, we have very few. So I, I do think you have to be analytical about it and look at it. If I looked and thought, okay, you know, so that's here's the criticism of our conditioning. You know that we don't, we just it's all high intensity. It's all at the end of the workout. We don't do enough 
longer stuff. And then I looked and thought, yeah, shit, all our resting heart rates are between 65 and 70. And then we're doing our recovery measuring and, you know, we've got people that are recovering 20 beats in a minute. I'd be like, yeah, we have to change what we're doing. And besides that, you're working with team sport athletes. So the idea is that uh, what brings you from A to B doesn't, it's not going to bring you from B to C. And let me clarify this. So, uh, it's questionable how much, you know, long intensive, long duration running or long duration, you know, aerobic conditioning it's needed for team sport athlete to get to a certain level where it's pretty much enough. Uh, but if you are training, you know, world-class triathlon, triathlete or endurance runner, you probably need to emphasize this low intensity, um, you know, running and using this, you know, polarized model or, or whatever. But the thing is, you know, you cannot put a you know, square peg in a round hole. So you're using uh, ideas from endurance running uh, in, in terms of mas- maximi- maximizing aerobic capacities and aerobic performance with you know, already pretty high-level endurance athletes and using those models and applying to a team sports where they actually don't need those levels of, of you know, endurance. Right, and I think that's a huge problem that's happened for a really long time in our field is that so many of the people who are interested in physiology are endurance athletes themselves. And so they, they tend to study everything through their lens. And we went through that for years in ice hockey in terms of I kept saying to people, I don't care what somebody's VO2 max is. It really doesn't matter to me. You know, if a guy's in the low 50s, he's fine. And we had some teams that were trying to push their guys up into the 70s. And I felt like in, in some situations, they push guys right out of the league because I talk about the idea of... Uh, Delilah cutting off Samson's hair, you know, and you spend a lot of time doing low intensity work with a guy who's marginally explosive. And that's the Charlie Francis thing that I've believed in forever. You can shift him to the wrong side of the spectrum. And suddenly he goes from being marginally explosive enough to play in the National Hockey League to being too slow to play in the National Hockey League. And that's not what you're looking for. And most everybody, it's rare. And again, you've been in, you know, the elite levels of sport, but it's rare to find somebody who's too fast twitch. Really rare. In just about any sport. I would look and think, you know, I'd much rather have a guy with a 40-inch vertical jump who's ridiculously unfit because I know I can get him fit than get a guy who's really fit and try to get his vertical jump even to break, you know, 25 inches. So I think that's the difference. And that's why I've always been a huge Charlie Francis guy since, you know, I mean, really since probably the 80s when I first read the Charlie Francis training system. And that's one thing that's stuck in, it's been in my presentations for years and it's been in my mind for years, this idea that we can make people as easily worse. We can make them easily worse. We can make them easily better by the stimulus that we present to them. And we've got to be really careful what, you know, to me, I look at our athletes and think I rarely, rarely, rarely see an athlete where I say he's overpowered. He's too, he's too fast. <laughs> he's too fast. He's too fast. He's too explosive. You know, he's outrunning every ball. You know, he's offside all the time because he's so fast. People can't get balls to him. You're like, no, we'll figure that out. We'll get a guy who can serve a ball in here so that, that he can run under. That will be all right. I think you Charlie. Know, when I look at people and I think. You know, why would you not, like I look, I think about this idea of building Superman and I always think that's what you're trying to do. And I look at like Christian Ronaldo might be as close to Superman in, in the world of soccer as you're going to get. And when you look at that guy's body, 
if he doesn't lift weights, he certainly looks like he does. <laughs> and and yet here he is, you know, he's he's to me one of the best. Like he's the LeBron James of soccer, you know, almost the perfect physique for the game. But yet you don't have enough people training and saying, "Damn, I want to look like Ronaldo." Yeah, uh, Charlie yes. Francis used to say that. Uh, um, he would rather have a, a, a guy who can touch the rim once rather than a guy who can not touch the rim 50 times. <laughs> exactly. That's it. I mean, you know, because the one guy, then you've got, the, it's like the raw, you have the raw material. When you get that guy that can touch the rim, you've got the raw material now to, to maybe do something special. You get that other guy, he's a grunt. And he'll probably always remain a grunt. He may be able to work himself up, but he doesn't have that that special quantity that you need. Yeah. Some, some, some teams and team sports do need, uh, you know, different types of athletes. And, um, you know, there, there's, a, I would say, a special role for, for the, you know, the grunt type of players in, in the squad. So, oh, yeah. No, I mean, if you think, like, guys playing, you know, guys that are playing backs in, you know, in soccer and football, you know, they're different. You know, they don't have to have the same speed and power capability, but I always look at it and think, I still would be training that guy to be more explosive and more powerful. I, you know, my thing is, I don't think you ever accept where somebody is. I might look at a guy and think, yeah, he's got a 23-inch vertical, he's not real fast. That's all the more reason that I've got to train him for speed and power. You know, I don't want to look at him and think, oh, he is what he is, because we know that it's, it's trainable at least in a 10% range. And we've seen it with our Olympic hockey girls. I have one of our girls who's gone from 19 inches to 29 inches in vertical jump in the last four years. You know what I mean? And that's like unheard of. But, you know, super talented kid, never really strength trained through college. And she did this all post-college, so it was all between 22 and 27. She's added 10 inches almost to her vertical. Amazing. Yeah, and it's just training. And but we've got a bunch that have added six in the same time period. So you look at it and think, I, I know absolutely positively without question that with a motivated person, you can make those types of changes. And with, you know, what again, that sort of that the criticized, you know, our hockey, our Olympic hockey girls are on that generic cookie cutter program in terms of you know, hang clean, split squat, one leg straight leg deadlift, bench press, chin up, you know, the same kind of idea that we use with everybody, that's what they use. But they're getting better. So sometimes I look and think, if it's not broken, don't try too hard to fix it. Maybe a, a year ago, I, I think I emailed you uh, regarding the postural restoration uh, ideas and and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, um, actually I'm, I'm asking you, how do you implement those ideas now and uh, say DNS and all these breeding stuff, uh, how do you implement those in your, you know, in your, you know, performance program? How, how these, how did those influence, you know, prehab yeah. and rehab? We don't do much with the DNS stuff. PRI, um, really the biggest thing for us has just been putting more emphasis on breathing, trying to teach people to breathe, breathe through your nose, breathe out your mouth, um, breathe when you're stretching, basic stuff like that. Uh, has been much better. And then I think what I've learned from PRI, I probably use more when I've got someone who's a little bit injured, someone who's complaining of back pain, 
And I find that's where the PRI stuff really comes in great in terms of trying to restore that pelvic symmetry because that's, you know, the, the one big thing that I took away from PRI was that all of us as right-handed, you know, the 90% of us that are right-handed have that pelvic asymmetry and that we need to go back and try to restore, almost re-rotate that pelvis to get it back in the right position. And really now you're re-rotating ribs, you're repositioning. But the other thing I've learned is the respect for the diaphragm, the understanding of breathing, the understanding of the mechanics of breathing and realizing that, okay, I there are things that I probably didn't understand then that I understand now. Does that make sense? I think probably, uh, you know, I would have said to somebody when they talk to me about breathing, I, I, I've had yoga people come to me over and over again and say, oh yeah, you know, you need to get your athletes to breathe, you need to do this, you need to do that. And, you know, I've kind of had that idea of, oh, I'm not so sure that that really matters. And I used to make jokes about, oh, don't worry about it. All my clients breathe. You know, I don't have any that are dead. You know, I'd always have some wise-ass remark. And then as I looked at the PRI stuff, I kind of had that feeling of, wow, I really screwed this up in terms of when they start to show you, when you really look at the anatomy of the body and you start to sort of look at where the heart is and where the liver is and what the diaphragm looks like, and what really goes on in breathing, uh, I, in some ways it made me feel almost dumb. I felt like, oh, geez, I, I should have I recognized this sooner as opposed to later. But it, it doesn't really drastically impact what we're doing from a programming standpoint, to be very honest. You know, we have a couple of, you know, a couple minutes maybe of breathing stuff at the beginning of the workout. And then from there, um, you know, it's not a huge part of what we're doing. But it is more so when we've got somebody that's uh, that's injured, I start thinking kind of PRI model right off the bat with that person and say, okay, now we've got to do some things that are going to facilitate left glute and facilitate right hip abductors because that's sort of, to me, the fundamental pattern that we're looking at is that right hip, uh, you know, left hip extension, right hip abduction is what tends to be a little out of whack. Yeah, that make, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it is stuff. Uh, something to look into definitely. It's, I, I I mean I guess that um, you, you'd love it. You're, you're, with your mind, I'd be very interested to see if you you know. And you can get their the myokinematics course is sort of their beginner course, and you can get that online. See after you watched it, what your thoughts were because it is pretty uh, thought provoking. Yeah, the terminology and everything is quite quite novel, I would say, and you know, is it's literally like learn foreign language. That's what I don't like. I, you know, one of the things I've tried to emphasize to the PRI people that I've met is stop. I don't like abbreviations at all because abbreviations make people stop and think about what the abbreviation. You know, because they've got PECs and HPEC and blah blah blah, and I'm kind of like stop talking like that. It's like people in a hospital, you know, they always talk in abbreviations because they all understand the abbreviations and they've got to realize that when you're talking to lay people, they don't, uh, they don't get it. <laughs> so let's, let's wrap this great interview and I could probably talk, you know, talk to you for hours, uh, but probably people can't listen more than 40, 60 minutes. Uh, so you always recommend great books and resources for coaches um, and pretty much as you said, you know, you know, from fields unrelated to strength conditioning. So, uh, 
Uh, two questions for you. What, what are you currently reading? And, you know, what can you recommend to strength conditioning coaches as a must-read literature, uh, you know, that can help with the coaching? I'm currently reading Lessons from the Mouse, which is a Disney book about customer service because that's become one of the big focuses for us in our business. So I think you have to realize that you have clients, you have customers, and that that, that matters. So I think the interpersonal aspect really matters. But, you know, I tell people that if they haven't read Start With Why, read Start With Why. If they haven't read you Never Read Alone, read Never Read Alone. I just finished You Win in the Locker Room first, which I loved. I read Legacy, which I loved. I could go on. I mean, I have a, a this. I've I've done a lot of reading. Actually, right now I'm reading uh, some some spy novels because I need a break from uh, all the professional reading that I've done. Um, oh, the Navy Seal one. I can't even think of the name. God, I wish I if I had. I, I actually put up a blog post. If they look at extreme ownership, blog, is it extreme ownership? Extreme ownership. Yeah. Which again, awesome book. So I've read all of those probably in the last six months. We have a. Uh, we have a book club at work now that we started, so I buy books for everybody on our staff, and then we try to read, say, one a month or one every five weeks, and then everybody has to submit a little review or a little takeaway that they got out of that book, and um, so, yeah, there's, there's a bunch. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. The, the one I'm currently reading is actually called Running Lean, which is about the, um, you know, developing our, our websites, but uh, I find a lot of similarities between you know developing the website uh using the agile and lean approaches and you know you know developing a athlete um so it, it's funny but you can find some of the parallels from you know unrelated fields and and we always try to reinvent the wheel and you know where other businesses and other fields are already dealing with the similar issue and already found the solution Exactly, and that's where I think, like I said, I'm actually, I have three different customer service books that I'm reading all at the same time, which you probably do the same thing. I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't sort of jump from book to book, but um, Customer Rules is another one from Lee Cockrell, which, again, Disney guy, and he wrote another one called Creating Magic that I love that I had everybody on our staff read, but you're right, and a lot of these big companies have been looking at problem solving for a long time, and I think, again, we go back to that Marco Cardinale idea, you know, your sport's not different, you just think it is. And you've got to realize that all of these things that are happening all have great similarity. How somebody built Disney has great similarity to how you build a great strength conditioning program. Someone might look at Legacy and think, it's about rugby. I don't know anything about rugby. And I'm like, you don't need to know anything about rugby to read Legacy. You can read Legacy and read it right through your own lens and not worry at all about the examples that they give in rugby. But, you know, the... No dickheads, you know. You know, I mean, there's some stuff in, in legacy that it's like, hey, that applies. I don't care where you go, what you do. That stuff applies everywhere you're going to be. And and so I think, yeah, it's really important that people see all the value in these other areas that maybe they're missing. Thanks a lot, Mike. Uh, I've really enjoyed the the talk, and I'm pretty sure the listeners enjoyed it as well. Um, Thanks for your time and good luck with, with the presentation. Thank you for you to publicize the book. And if anybody's interested, strengthcoach.com is the place I'm going, you know, where I am answering questions every day. If people are interested in that too, they can look at strengthcoach.com. They can buy the book. If they like it, tell me they like it. If they don't like it, don't review it. Negative reviews on Amazon aren't good. So <laughs> it's, it's called positive bias. Thanks a lot, Mike. I'm looking forward to right. your book. I got to run down and get to these seminars. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. 